0: You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Today, we are talking about the role of the nurse scientist and I'd like to welcome Dr. Ellen Smith to the show. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Smith.
1: Could you tell us a little
0: bit? We've got a little delay, I think. Um, Thank you so much for being here. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your background in nursing?
1: Sure, I'd love to do that. And again, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. So I am currently the Assistant Dean for Research and Scholarship here at the UAB School of Nursing. And I'm also a Cancer Symptom Scientist. And I started my career as a clinical nurse. I worked on an oncology inpatient setting, oncology meaning a Uh, managing patients with cancer. And over the years, I expanded my scope and eventually became a nurse practitioner. And as a nurse practitioner, I began to really become increasingly concerned about some of the problems that my patients were having that I didn't know how to address. And so, for example, I was managing patients who had terrible nerve-related pain. And as a nurse practitioner, my job was to try to help them relieve the pain. And I can maybe share in a little bit a few stories about uh, specific patients. But anyway, uh, that's where I started. And when I began to notice that there were clinical problems that were not currently addressed and that we didn't know enough about uh, based on the science, that's then what motivated me to want to become
0: a scientist. So when you say scientist, we are are referring to your preparation um, as a PhD prepared
1: nurse, correct? That's correct, right. And so a PhD prepared nurse uh, is no different than anyone else with a PhD. And that PhD degree prepares you to discover new knowledge. And so that's what scientists do. That's their job. They answer complicated questions and try to learn new ways to improve our lives uh, in many different ways. So yes, a PhD-prepared nurse, uh, their job is to do research.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about your preparation that was required for you to enter that role? Sure. So at the very minimum, you have to have
1: a PhD, but there are a few different ways to get to that point. And there's some controversy in the field about what type of preparation you need. There are some that say that you really must have a clinical foundation meaning that you become a nurse, a clinical nurse first. You get some experience working in a practice setting of some type. By doing that, this then informs your research because you experience some of the problems that are out there. How much clinical expertise you need, or if any at all, before Uh, Obtaining a PhD, again, is controversial. It used to be that we believed that you had to have quite a bit of experience uh, clinically before moving on, but we have since modified uh, that thinking because historically, nurses were really taking too long to obtain their PhD. So they were working in clinical practice settings for many, many years before pursuing their Ph.D. and then this then resulted in having a shorter time as that scientist over the course of your career to discover new things. So most recently there has been for nurses to move right from their basic background, so their basic bachelors of uh, science and nursing degrees, and to move right straight into Ph.D. programs. And so in some cases, nurses will move into their Ph.D. training without having a lot of clinical experience. And so the other side of the argument about, you know, do you need clinical experience or not, is that you don't really maybe need that much. Because, again, as a Ph.D. prepared scientist, you are learning how to do science. You're not learning how to be a clinician. And so there's probably some intermediate place. I was someone uh, that took a long time in clinical practice before I then moved uh, into becoming a PhD-prepared nurse, uh, and I wish I had moved uh, sooner than I did. I can certainly understand that.
0: And it's interesting if you think about it in terms of other fields where people can obtain a PhD that they are not required to go get experience necessarily before moving into that goal. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between a doctorate of nursing practice and a PhD prepared nurse? Um, because there are these two, two branches of doctoral education in nursing. Sure. Sure. So the DNP
1: degree, or having a doctorate in nursing practice, is a degree that prepares you as a clinical expert to then take research evidence that has already been discovered and published and to implement those new findings into clinical practice settings. So a DNP learns how to take research findings and implement them, and, and by doing so, you know, helping patients and families uh, and communities and populations uh, to be uh, the best they can be, you know, healthy, and etc. But the DNP uh, uh, education does not prepare you to know how to do Uh, scientific experiments, So it does not train you to be a scientist. So that's the main difference. Uh, And so the PhD prepared person is uh, learning how to actually create that new knowledge that the DNP then brings to practice settings.
0: So for people who are interested in potentially exploring a career as a PhD prepared nurse, Let's talk a little bit about um, what that actually involves. So about how long does that program last?
1: Sure, so in general, uh, PhD programs in other disciplines, typically at at the longest may take up to seven years. But again, in nursing, we've tried to shorten that trajectory uh, so that we're still producing adequately trained scientists, but that we're doing it in a more efficient way so that we can get scientists out there uh, to do the work that is so desperately needed. So I would say that PhD programs now, the general t- uh, time frame for completing that degree is anywhere between three to four years. And that's uh, assuming full-time study.
0: And then the other part that students will generally think about is the money, right? So where where do they get the money from? Is there, um, are there options for students to be supported while completing this program? Yeah, that's such an important question.
1: I would never have been able to obtain my PhD if I hadn't been able to find some funding support. Many schools with... Uh, highly ranked uh, PhD programs will provide full funding for any PhD student who's accepted to their program and uh, is enrolled uh, via a full-time status. And so if you're uh, looking at various uh, schools and places to go, that's a very important question to ask. You know, if I come there full-time will uh, I be funded? And by funded, that means that your tuition is paid for. You receive a monthly stipend. It's not a big stipend, but it's enough to hopefully uh, allow the student to go to school full time and not have to work. And in addition, there's often health benefits that go along with it, not only for yourself, but perhaps for a family uh, as well. And so there are many ways that schools uh, fund uh, their students. Uh, uh, Administrators within PhD programs work very hard to obtain grants that they can then use to give money to students, scholarships to students. Uh, Those grants can come from the National Institute of Health, they can come from uh, foundations, like so, for example, because I was a cancer researcher, my PhD was funded completely by the American Cancer Society, and I applied for a scholarship and and then received the funding. Other ways to receive funding, there's a mechanism called a, a nurse faculty loan program, and so if uh, you agree, after you obtain your PhD, to really dedicate your time uh, as a faculty member. You can then receive uh, money to support uh, your training. So I guess, in summary, I would say that if you really want to pursue a PhD, there there's money out there. And I would say that probably the majority of PhD uh, applicants get at least some kind of funding, if not complete funding.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's important for us to know that when we talk about PhD prepared nurses, we are referring to maybe one or 2% of all nurses, um, who go on to get this, this specific type of training. Um, and so to that point, what kind of jobs are available to PhD prepared nurses?
1: Well, that's really the good news. Unlike other scientific disciplines where jobs are harder to find, within nursing, we are really facing a significant faculty shortage. So many of our faculty to date are older, and it's been anticipated that approximately 30 to 40% of faculty who are currently employed in schools of nursing will be retiring within the next several years. So, so the first answer to that question is that there are many faculty opportunities. Uh, and so if someone is interested in working uh, within academia, within a university, uh, there are many jobs there. But there are other options uh, beyond working in an academic setting. A PhD-prepared nurse can work uh, in industry. So, for example, uh, there are companies that are developing, you know, scientific innovations, new drugs, new technologies, and these companies need PhD-prepared scientists to help them develop and test their innovations. So that's an area where one can go. Uh, there are uh, uh, careers within, you know, the government, like the Centers for Disease Control or at the National Institutes of Health, uh, the Centers for Medicare Services. Uh, again, all of these organizations, uh, really are dependent upon scientists to, again, guide their work and to, uh, create new knowledge and to make certain that uh, science uh, in, the, in the most rigorous form is used to inform the work that they do. i um, trying to think. Oh, and then clinical practice. There are PhD-prepared nurses that are employed in hospitals, for example, or outpatient clinics, uh, perhaps less so. But in those roles, again, these scientists are helping uh, nurses most of the time within a clinical practice setting, to think about research, to conduct research studies. And this, for example, is an important component of achieving magnet status. So magnet status within, you know, at a hospital is a very uh, uh, highly regarded uh, designation. And in order for a hospital to obtain magnet status, they have to be doing research. And so there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of doors open once you obtain that PhD.
0: And I, I agree with you. I think the possibilities are in a way kind of endless and it's, it's nice to have the flexibility of kind of picking the city that you want to go to. And I would assume you can find a pop, an opportunity there. Um, what would you say are the, the qualities that one would need to have to, to pursue, complete, serve in the role of a PhD prepared nurse? Oh, I
1: love that question, right? Because it's so important to uh, be well matched with the career that you accept. So to begin with, Beth, you have to be curious. You have to be someone who doesn't accept the status quo doesn't accept the fact that we've always done it a certain way, and that's the way we should continue to do it. So you're, you're seeing problems, you're asking questions, and you're striving to try to improve upon uh, the work that you're currently involved in. Because a PhD-prepared nurse is a scholar, and you have to like to read, you have to like to write, Writing is a critically important skill, because in order to do the research, you have to write research grants or applications to uh, do your work, and so you have to be able to uh, tell a compelling story, pull together the science, be able to say, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. And therefore, my research is important because it's going to address an important gap. So you have to like writing, and maybe if you're not as good of a writer uh, to begin with, you'll learn how to be a good writer uh, or a better writer uh, as you go through the educational process. You have to be collaborative because there's not any problem you can address all by yourself. Today's clinical problems are complicated and require uh, thinking from many different disciplines. And so you have to sort of like to work together with other people. So that's a critical skill. Being open to critique. So it's, it's kind of a tough job because you write these research grants, you uh, then find something that you then want to disseminate. So you're then writing a, a publication about your results, and your grants and your publications all uh, go through a peer review process, meaning that your peers review your work and critique it, and So most of the time when you write a grant or when you write a paper, which is critical to your work as a scientist, you're going to get a lot of feedback back that you might not like. (laughs) It's tough, right? So someone will say, well, you know, did you consider doing it this way? Or you know, I disagree with the methods that you use. So you get this critique back and that critique improves your work and improves your science, so you have to learn how to take that critique in the best way possible and not uh, take it personally because you get a lot of critique, you get a lot of no's, you submit your papers, they get rejected, you revise them, and so having a bit of a thick skin, but I don't want to say that in a negative way, what I really want to say is you learn to really appreciate feedback because you get better and you grow as a result of that. You have to be persevering because of that, right? So if you get a couple of rejections, you don't give up and you say, oh my gosh, why did I become a scientist? I, I, you know, this work is hard, it is hard, but you have to stick with it. And then I think the last thing I would say is You have to be willing to pivot. So you may have an idea, and you might find out that that idea uh, maybe isn't one that your peer reviewers think is important. And, you know, your peer reviewers are the ones that make decisions about whether or not you get that grant, whether or not you get those funds to do your research. So sometimes you have to change your focus a little bit while not changing it too much because you want to really stay within a certain lane and not, you know, di- diverge too much. But, you know, to be innovative uh, and, and to change a little bit uh, as you need to. So if you, if you get stuck and you keep submitting grants and papers that your peers believe are not really impactful, then you better switch you know, and figure out a different way to go.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about a day in the life of a researcher? Is there a typical day or or what do your days look like?
1: That's a really good question. And so the day in the life of a researcher really depends upon what type of research you do. So there are some nurses, for example, that do what we call bench research, meaning that they work in probably the stereotypical lab where they're doing experiments with cells or with uh, animals, perhaps. Um, And so, again, as a PhD-prepared researcher, you are not necessarily doing all of the the work that's required to do the experiments, but you're designing the experiments and you're supervising and you're training the experiments. So
0: you're kind of,
1: you're the leader of your research. So in a typical day uh, for me, so I'm not a bench scientist, I'm a, a, a scientist that conducts clinical trials with patients with cancer, clinical trials meaning I uh, come up with some kind of a, a treatment for a problem, and then I test whether or not that treatment works. Most specifically for me, uh, one of the main areas of my research is to test a drug that can prevent one of the side effects of some of the chemotherapy drugs, uh, namely nerve damage, so peripheral neuropathy. So. I have to spend a lot of time reading and writing the grants that will then fund my research. So a lot of what I do every day is that, reading and writing and revising. And then uh, once I obtain money to do the project, then I pull together a team of people and I'm pulling it together, that team, actually before I get the funding because they help me write the grant, they give me input on the grant, and then I pull them all together, and then we work together to do the research. And so, for example, right now I have a study that is being conducted across the United States. Uh, there are patients that are participating in about 50 or 60 sites uh, all across, uh, uh, again, the United States. And so my work is to make certain that my research uh, is implemented properly at those sites. So I'm training people at those sites. I'm uh, attending national conferences where all those people come together and I listen to them about what kinds of problems they're having. Uh, I, again, teach them about you know what are the procedures that are important. Which patients are eligible, which patients, you know, can we actually uh, test this treatment on, right? Because you, again, as a scientist, you have to make certain that you're controlling certain things that might affect your results so that you can say at the end that it was my treatment that caused an improvement in a symptom and it wasn't because of some other random thing. So anyway, I'm supervising all of that. I'm meeting with my team every day uh, in some way, either uh, virtually or face-to-face meetings, or monitoring our work. Uh, we're addressing problems. Uh, so for example, you know, we're always wanting to make certain that we're able to accrue or um, uh, encourage participants to take part in our study. And sometimes accrual is tough, and so you have to figure out, you know, how do I find the patients? How do I engage the patients? How do I make certain that I'm getting the right patients? How do I keep the patients on the study so that they don't drop out? Because if they drop out, then that doesn't help us answer the questions. So it's a combination of um, writing and working with teams to uh, get the funding and then figure out how to do the work and then collecting the data. And So then after you collect the data, then your last phase is that you're analyzing the results and you're working with people who are experts in that, so statisticians, and uh, you crunch the numbers. And you see that at the end, oh my gosh, the patients who received the treatment had less Nerve pain and the people who didn't, and then you spend more time writing up the results, and then you start all over again. Uh, and so you're not necessarily in clinical practice settings, right? So you you have that expertise, and you work with people in the clinical practice settings, but you have a team that will actually go to the clinical practice setting and work with the patients. So. I don't know, that was kind of a a long description, but uh, I think that probably covers it for most researchers.
0: Yeah, I I think that was a great example, and especially when you talk about the teamwork and the collaboration that you have to engage in to be a successful researcher. I think that was very well highlighted. What, What are the major challenges? that you have faced in this role and how did you overcome them?
1: So as I mentioned, it's not an easy job. It requires, again, a a lot of focus, a lot of hard work. It's definitely a 40 hour a week job and most often more than that. Uh, The challenges, I think probably the first main challenge is that you have to get that funding and you're competing with people all over the country who will also write a grant application and hope to get funding for their project. And So all these applications go to the funder, whether it's the National Institute of Health or a foundation like the American Cancer Society, and uh, you have to write such a well-written and compelling and impactful application that they pick you for funding. And depending upon the area where you are working, so if I use the National uh, Cancer Institute as one place where I go to funding to get funding, only about 8% of the applications get selected. So it's very competitive. And you're spending a lot of time. It's sort of like I explained uh, this to my husband, who does custom woodworking. It's like you work with a customer, to, you know, for three, four, five months to build this beautiful piece of furniture, and then you present it to the customer, and the cu- customer says, "No, eh, I don't like that. Start over again." So, so it's the same kind of thing. You put a lot of hours and time into your work. And you don't always see a payoff. And so that's why you have to be persistent and keep trying. So that's probably one main challenge. Mm -hmm. Another challenge is related to where you're working. So if you're in an academic position, researchers tend to be hired into what we call tenure-track positions. Which means that you come in pre-tenure, and tenure is when you are um, able to achieve a certain status at a university based on your productivity, your ability to get research funding, your ability to disseminate your work and really make a difference. If you do all those things and the university says, okay, you can stay here forever now. You have earned your stripes, and, uh, and so that's what tenure is about. And there's more to it than that. Um, but you have to achieve that tenure. And it can take anywhere from seven to ten years to get to that place. And if you don't meet the mark, if you don't achieve the benchmarks, then you sometimes have to find a new job someplace else there's a lot of pressure and you're balancing you know having to do your research with other responsibilities as a faculty member so you're also teaching which is a main and important responsibility sometimes you're also working in a clinical practice setting as a nurse in some capacity and so you have to figure out how to balance all of those responsibilities and in addition Do what we call service activities, meaning that you uh, donate some of your time to advance national initiatives. So you become a member of a committee. And maybe, as one example, you volunteer to be someone who reviews grants and makes those decisions about who receives funding. And again, that's, you know. We have an obligation to do that, but it takes a lot of time. So you have to balance all of those things. So it's 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 tough, and it's stressful. And uh, I remember before I achieved tenure that I was very anxious about it. And, you know, you have a family. You, you know, have decided to live in a certain area. And if, if you don't make tenure, then you may have to, you know, Rip up your roots and go somewhere else. So it's it's um, can be can be stressful, but again, you know it's obviously doable and amazingly rewarding. Uh, and so uh, you know don't don't perceive those challenges as a reason not to do it. You know every occupation has its challenges, and you know. When you come in as a new faculty member, you know you are typically assigned to a mentor or two or three, and you work with those people, and they help you and they guide you, and and then you make
0: it. You know, there's um, this reminds me there was something someone told me when I was interested in pursuing a PhD, and that was that one of the beauties of the PhD is that you can kind of create your own job description. You can develop this program of study based on your interests and and see where it goes, which is I think one of the benefits to the role. Oh, yeah. uh, what are some resources yeah. that we could point people to if they're interested in nursing research? Right, and so I think we have, um some uh,
1: uh, slides of some of the resources that are out there online. So the National Institute of Nursing Research is one of the resources where nurses can go to not only uh, get training but to obtain funding for the research. So you can go to this website and you can learn about all these opportunities uh, as you can see uh, highlighted here. There are other resources that you can use to really understand in more detail what is a research-focused, meaning a PhD-prepared person. Uh, What do they do? What does that mean? How uh, do you get the training? And and what will uh, you be able to do at the end of the day? So you're seeing here displayed on the screen, again, a variety of resources. So the American Association of Colleges of Nursing is a really great place to go to learn more about, again, the PhD versus the DNP. And in addition, I mean, you can always reach out to uh, faculty at a university where you're thinking about going. And the one thing I didn't say that I want to emphasize Is that if you're considering a PhD, it's important that you go to a school where there are faculty experts who do the thing that you want to do or to study the thing that you want to do. Because the PhD degree is really a mentored degree. So you go and you're matched with a mentor who has expertise in the science that you want to learn more about, you take courses and such, but then you're working very closely with a mentor. Uh, so anyway, you know, in deciding where to go, you can always uh, reach out to uh, folks at a particular university, such as the director of the PhD program or the director of the DNP program, and uh, talk with them about, you know, what is your program like. Uh, Talk about what your interests are. They can help match you with uh, faculty who have uh, expertise in your area. So I guess what I'm wanting to say in summary is that you don't just go to a school that's in your backyard. You go to a school where the mentors are there that can guide you to do that work that Dr. Jones just mentioned that you have cut out for yourself. Uh, and, you know, so that you can really design your own pathway. Like, and the other cool thing about being a Ph.D. researcher, nobody tells you what to do. <laughs> really, right? It's a very autonomous type of role. Yes, you know, you have to do certain things and participate in meetings and teach courses and such. But, you know, my mother will often say to me, what are you doing? Are you working today? You're at home. What are you doing? And you know, I, I plan my day. I, you know, and so that's like a quality you have to have, right? You have to be pretty self-driven and be able to, you know, push yourself. Nobody's going to tell you what to do or when to do it. And So you might like that. And and if you, if you need a lot of direction, then it's probably not the best job for you.
0: Yeah. Excellent advice. Excellent words of wisdom. Um, well, any, any other final thoughts or takeaways for people who are interested in the role of the nurse scientist?
1: Yeah, I, I just want to emphasize what is it about being a nurse researcher that is so exciting? I interact with lots of nursing students and have done so over the years. And again, as Dr. Jones mentioned, a very small percentage of people go on to get a PhD. And sometimes that's because we don't understand all the cool stuff that you get to do, right? So often someone who wants to be a nurse really wants to do that hands-on clinical practice, and that's awesome and amazing. Uh, But the other cool and awesome, amazing things that you get to do as a PhD-prepared person, instead of affecting the life of the person that's sitting right in front of you, the patient and their family, you are affecting the lives of people all over the world. Your research will make an impact on populations of people. And your work will then you know, help people to feel better improve their quality of life, prevent disease, help patients to manage their disease, help to address disparities, right, so there are some people who are more prone to having problems with their health just because of the color of their skin or where they live or how much money they have, and as a scientist, you can help address those disparities. You know, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories where the work that I've done has impacted patients and that's what keeps me going. And just super quickly, the very first research study that I did, I was not a PhD prepared nurse. It was sort of what got me excited uh, to become one. And I'm not going to get into the details, but anyway, the very first person, this was a patient with head and neck cancer who agreed to participate in my study, and he wasn't really very excited to do so at the beginning because he didn't really understand what nurses do. And, you know, you're a nurse, right? You know, you're doing science. Why should I participate in your research? And so anyway, he participated, and at the end of my research study, he really, Benefited a lot. The, the the thing that I was testing helped him to be able to keep taking the chemotherapy that was saving his life. And so, at the very end of that study, he was walking out of the cancer center with me, and we were about to say goodbye. And he he was a pretty big guy. He was well over six feet, and he grabbed me around the waist, picked me up swung me around, put me back then on the ground, and said, you made a difference in my life. And I think about that all the time. And I have people from all over the country who have read my work, not only scientists but students and, you know, trainees and and patients and their families. And I have one particular family member from Greece who every holiday sends me an email message to wish me a happy holiday because he was so grateful for the work that I did. So that's what keeps me going and that's what you can do as a PhD prepared
0: nurse. Thank you for sharing those and thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your expertise and your experience. We, I'm very grateful to have spent that time with you. That's all we have. That's all we have for today's show. Please remember to like, and subscribe to our network and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.